0: Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Listeners, today we are giving you a very special bonus episode. going to revisit a conversation I had a while back with the two women who made the award-winning documentary all about the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And as I'm sure you've noticed, the conversation after Ginsburg's death, it moved quickly from honoring her life to speculating, about what comes next, and who might replace her on the Supreme Court. Listeners, I am not a good speculator. So in this episode, we are just going to take some time to look back at RBG's life and legacy. So I talked with documentary filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen in 2018 about their film called Simply RBG. That movie covers a lot of ground, from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's days as one of the first female students at Harvard Law School, to working on women's rights cases with the ACLU back in the 70s, to arguing cases in front of the Supreme Court a whopping six times.
1: Female citizens of
2: Louisiana are denied equal protection by the total absence of their peers from
0: the jury. I thought the and, new theory was that there's very little difference between men and women, and so why wouldn't a man jury be there? Well, peers?
1: I'm not aware of that new theory.
0: And as a special treat, In this episode, listeners, you'll also hear Nina Totenberg, NPR's own legal affairs correspondent and friend of RBG. The part
2: that is so sweet about this movie and so different about it is that they so perfectly captured her relationship with her late husband who died
0: in 2010, I think. And it's a love story. All right. Without further ado, in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her work and her legacy, here is my chat from 2018 with Julie, Betsy, and Nina. Enjoy. Why this movie now? I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been in the public consciousness now for decades. Why now? And what made you want to do it now?
3: Well, you know, Justice Ginsburg, starting in 2013, 2014, started to take on an enormous amount of internet fame. Uh, Betsy and I had each interviewed her previously for other documentary projects and in early 2015 we just said someone has to do... A full dress documentary on Justice Ginsburg, telling the full life story. And why shouldn't it be us? I mean, even some of her biggest fans, some of the millennials who are putting tattoos on themselves with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face, (laughs) don't really know everything that she accomplished for American women. And it just was a story that, you know, we wanted to tell.
0: Yeah. There are these moments you have in the film, Julie and Betsy, where you're playing this archive tape of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her husband, Marty, and Ruth now is watching it, and you see such a beautiful overwhelming smile on her face and you see the love that she still has for this man and it is hard to not be moved to tears by it. What made you both want to spend such a good amount of time in the film focusing not just on her legal career but on this this true romance?
1: Well, we knew that she'd had a long and happy marriage, but it wasn't until we began uh, working on the film that we realized how important this marriage was to her, both personally and professionally. I mean, it's an incredible model of a feminist marriage. Mm
0: -hmm. Marty
1: Ginsburg was an extremely talented, uh, successful tax lawyer who happened to be married to a brilliant uh, legal strategist, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and when her career began to take off in the 1970s when she was arguing cases before the Supreme Court that changed the world for American women, he began to take over more of the responsibilities in the House. And eventually, when she became a federal judge, he moved to Washington for her. And then, you know, when there was an opening on uh, the Supreme Court, Marty Ginsburg, who was a very affable, well-connected guy, campaigned for her Mm -hmm. to be considered to go on the Supreme Court. I mean, what more could you want?
0: (laughs) You know, I found myself watching the part of the film where you outlined just how hard Ruth was working. You know, she was taking care of these kids. She was practicing law. She was caring for Marty while he was sick with cancer. She was averaging a lot of times like two hours of sleep a night. You know, she was living this kind of Cheryl Sandbergian have-it-all life <laughs> before we had a name for that. Was what she was doing... Really, out of the ordinary, or were there women always doing this, and we just didn't notice
3: yeah, that's a it's a really interesting I mean she she was leaning the heck in as you <laughs> as you say before before leaning in was a thing um I'm not going to say that there weren't some other women uh, doing extraordinary feats, but by any measure, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an extraordinary woman Dur- during that uh, period in her life, you know, when she herself is in Harvard Law School on the law review her husband who's also in law school has testicular cancer she's helping care for him and they've got a toddler I mean it's you know, it it feels it sounds pretty superhuman. You know, looking back on it now, she just says she was doing what she had to do.
0: Well, there's this moment where she's talking about basically having to like leave school to go care for her young child. And I feel like most people would say, yeah, it tired me the hell out. She said, no, being at home with my daughter helped ground me and make me better in school.
1: Absolutely. It's amazing. It was a break. Yeah, I don't know. Other people who have taken care of toddlers. It doesn't always (laughs) seem like a break, but she saw it that way. Yeah,
2: yeah. To know Ruth Bader Ginsburg is to understand that she really is a woman of unbelievable steel. I mean, her mother died the day before she was to graduate from high school, and her whole life has been working unbelievably hard. She always looks for a way to do something. So she'll say, well, no, taking care of a child just made me better able to study until 4 o'clock in the morning and then get up at 7 and and et cetera, et cetera. So you have to – you get an idea of her determination and steeliness.
0: I want to ask, Nina, you know, there's a section of the film – that talks about this really methodical, well-thought-out legal strategy that she exercised in the 70s to push for the equality of women. And it was a grand plan that moved step-by-step, case-by-case. Can you outline briefly what that strategy was and what Ruth was doing uh, that was really kind of ahead of her time, perhaps?
2: Well, as she said in the film, she sometimes felt a bit like a kindergarten teacher for the courts because they were almost all male. And on Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, they were all male. There'd never been a woman on the court at that point. And she's trying to persuade them that discrimination based on gender is discrimination against women, even when it's done for a good purpose Hmm. to protect them. Like you shouldn't work after a certain time of night. Well, that means a whole category of jobs is closed off to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she often picked, not always, but often picked male plaintiffs. And the one that Julie and Betsy talk about in the movie is um, a case involving a widower whose wife died in childbirth, and he's left uh, supporting a child, and he wants to take care of the child, and he doesn't qualify for survivor's benefits under Mm -hmm. the Social Security law. And his wife had paid into Social Security. She'd been a school teacher, and he wasn't eligible for the money. So Ginsburg takes this case. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in the end, the court... For a variety of reasons, sides with the argument that she's making that this is discrimination against the man based on his gender, it's discrimination against the woman because she's not getting the same benefits for her child Mm -hmm. and her husband after Mm -hmm. she dies and that it's discrimination against the child because the child (laughs) doesn't get the benefits that he would have or she would have gotten otherwise if the two parents weren't treated equally.
0: Yeah. There was another case um, with a woman who had joined the Air Force and was married, but she did not qualify for a housing allowance that her male counterparts got.
3: Uh, Pip indeed. Sharon Frontiero, when she was a lieutenant in the Air Force, a- a- as you say, couldn't get the same housing benefits uh, for a mar- as a married woman that a married man in the Air Force could have gotten. Uh, she thought the whole thing couldn't possibly be how it was. She just thought, oh, someone made an administrative error. I'll just get this all straightened out and was sort of horrified, not only that she was denied the benefits, but also, I think, by the condescending attitude that she was uh, treated with, which was kind of like, hey, you're lucky to be in the Air Mm -hmm. Force at all, lady. And she just said, forget it, I'm going to fight this. Um, Got a lawyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was then working with the ACLU Women's Rights Project, took on the case, and she and the lawyer who had originally brought it together argued it before the Supreme Court and just starting off on on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's path of making the case that men and women should be treated completely equally under the U.S. Constitution.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, she ends up during this time period arguing, what, six cases in front of the Supreme Court. She wins five of those six.
2: It's a very it's so interesting because she's always so calm and self-possessed. But she said she didn't eat lunch that day because hers argument was the first one after lunch, and she was afraid she'd throw up in the courtroom if she ate lunch. Well, you know, there's one, one story I'm going to tell. I first met her by phone. Really? And I, I was a brand new reporter assigned to cover the Supreme Court, and I am trying to learn everything I can learn about the court, and of course I know next to nothing. And there's this brief, and it's, I guess, what, 72 And it argues, it was the first sex discrimination case to go to the Supreme Court, and it argues that women are covered by the 14th Amendment, guarantee of equal protection of the laws. Now, this is a post-Civil War constitutional amendment, and so I I didn't really understand why this would apply to women, why it wouldn't apply Hmm. to, you know, it was enacted for the freed slaves. It's funny to
0: hear you say that, because I hear equal protection now, and to me, in my mind... It applies to everyone and everything. But it didn't during that time, you're saying. uh,
2: That's what I thought. So Uh I go, I call her her up. I I look on the front of the brief. It's written by a professor at Rutgers named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I call her up. And I emerge from the phone booth like an hour later, uh, sort of like a a goose who had been... you know, force-fed information for an hour to get me ready for to produce my liver. In this case, my story, and um, <laughs> and and what she said then was that they, first of all, the Fourteenth Amendment says all persons should mm-hmm. be treated equally. It doesn't say all African American and mm-hmm. white people. It doesn't say all men and women. It doesn't. It says all persons. And there's a fair amount of legislative history, so to speak, that about some people who were sponsors of the of the of that amendment and what they intended. And she was able to present that and argue that and present it as this is one of the reasons she's for, she believes in a living constitution. Mm-hmm. And she didn't argue that
0: case. She wrote the brief, but she didn't argue it. Gotcha. But that argument, basically, that the Equal Protection Clause applies not just to black people and white people, mm-hmm. b- but also to women. That was a foundation for all of those cases she was bringing up during the 70s, right? Exactly. Gotcha.
3: And And a body of law that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was really the champion of.
0: She, from the start, was a young girl that wanted to be able to do all that the boys did, like climbing garage roofs and such, she said. But also she experienced discrimination before she was even a lawyer. There's this scene in the film where you talk about her being... What one of nine women in Harvard Law's class of, like, 500, and the dean has this meal for the women and at this dinner for them, he asks them why they're taking the men's spots. Like, this is the thing that she dealt with from the start. Was that that as much a part of why she did the work she did?
1: You know, I think um, initially... Uh, Fighting this kind of discrimination became her life's work. But at the very beginning, it was more she loved the law. Hmm. And as she says in the film, uh, during the McCarthy era, she had a professor who explained what lawyers were doing to fight that injustice. And she thought, hey, that's a good thing to do with your life, that you could use your brain and your skills to help other people. And I think that was her motivation. When she gets to Harvard Law School, and she's Juggling family and a sick husband and everything else, and she's still excelling. And then, and then you get out of law school, and it's like, no, no, sorry, we can't hire you. You're a woman. <laughs> You know, that that was the beginning of certainly of the discrimination, but it was really the women's movement at the end of the 1960s where some she she credits her students with coming to her and saying, "We want to know more about women in the law." Can can you research this? And she she does the research which she says doesn't take her very long because there just aren't that many discrimination cases. And and that's when she sets on this path that, you know, ultimately addresses some of the discrimination that she experienced and and you know helps everybody else too yeah the
2: other thing is the idea of law and rules really appealed to her at one point in the movie she says you know well I, I don't I don't march I don't do that let me do the thing I can do hmm. one of the areas of the law that she's a, a master in is civil procedure, which, let me tell you, for, as somebody who covers the Supreme Court, is really boring. <laughs> Jake,
1: so boring. Do you wonder why it, why it's not in our
2: film? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And I should also say that, you know, the very first sex discrimination case that she handled Her husband actually brought to her attention because it was a tax case involving a guy who couldn't deduct the care of his aging mother under the tax code. But if he'd been a woman, he could have.
0: Hmm.
2: And the two of them took that case together. He did it from the tax perspective and she did it from the sex discrimination perspective.
0: Yeah. You all touched on it in the film, but during the election season, uh, in the run-up to November 2016, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made some uncharacteristically harsh comments about candidate then-candidate Donald Trump. So back in July of 2016, she told the New York Times, quote, He is a faker. He has no consistency about him. He says whatever comes into his head at the moment, he really has an ego. How has he gotten away with not turning over his tax returns? The press seems to be very gentle with him on that. She also said, I can't imagine what this place would be. I can't imagine what the country would be with Donald Trump as our president. She later had to apologize for those comments, and it was... Thought by many that she stepped out of bounds and as a Supreme Court justice should not have said those kind of things uh, about someone that could be president. Um, Nina, how much, how out of line was it? I remember when it happened and I said, this feels weird. And it It felt weird for her to do it.
2: It was out of line and it wasn't, and she did it more than once in the space of three days. I think she did it three times.
0: Why'd she do it?
2: I have no idea. It is inappropriate. After the f- the first time she did it, it didn't seem to get much attention. It, but once it was on the front page of the New York Times, kaboom. And she knew she'd made a mistake and she made it an apology. But, of course, that prompted um, Donald Trump. Then I guess it was candidate Trump to call her a loser uh, who's lost it and all kinds of other things. But it was, it was a mistake. And it, there's no way, way you can take back a mistake like that except to apologize.
0: Does it tarnish her legacy?
2: No, I don't think so. If she had kept it up, it would have, yeah.
0: I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, for Julie and Betsy, how much did she talk about that moment, and how, what did she say was her mental calculus going into it?
1: Well, she, after um, she did apologize, she basically said, I think it would have been best if I said nothing. Uh, And so she wasn't really going to elaborate. Uh, We did ask her about uh, the idea that, that somehow this disqualifies her from, you know, sitting on cases involving the current administration. And she was very forceful in saying, if anybody thinks that who I might have voted for as president is going to affect the way I do my job in interpreting the laws. They do not understand how the basically how I work and how the judicial system works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about the notorious RBG's place in the culture right now. You guys hit on it towards the end of the film, but... This woman who has for her entire life been intellectual and quiet and focused is okay. now at 85, a bigger star than she's ever been. Why? And why now? And why her? It's She's in a very unique moment that seems surprising.
1: Yeah, we think that it began in 2013 with the Shelby County case. And, What's that uh, case for those who don't know? That case is um, where the Supreme Court majority ruled that uh, certain oversight of um, voting in states which had a history of discrimination against African-Americans could be loosened because our country has changed. And she wrote a stinging uh, dissent in which she said, Taking away these protections is like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm just because you're not getting wet. (laughs) And a young law student uh, started a Tumblr uh, entitled Notorious RBG, and it just her persona just kind of took off. The idea of this. small octogenarian grandmother who's speaking truth to power I mean it's it's funny and it's inspiring at the same time and it just kind of grew from there yeah
3: yeah basically every uh, every time that Justice Ginsburg would do something to put herself in the news if it, any any legal opinion that she wrote and any dissent in particular you know the internet, Would just go wild. It's not what you think of when you think of social media, but like that's how you know Instagram pictures of her, the merch that people started making, the phenomenon of tattoos. The you know there just uh, there was just something about the juxtaposition of a soft-spoken, great legal mind. And, you know, and of course, with the great uh, comparison being made to the notorious B.I.G., a uh, a joke that Justice Ginsburg herself uh, seems to enjoy and amplifies by making the point that the two have so much in common because they were both born and bred in Brooklyn. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like kooky and it's funny, but there's like a kernel of real substance to it because people are seeing like this little fierce intellect is speaking up. Well, and the, there's the, a hunger for that. The yeah. the
2: the seed for it I think actually was planted in 2008 mm-hmm. when she wrote a dissent and voiced it from the bench um in a major sex discrimination case that she lost 5 to 4 in the Supreme Court. Which case? It was called it was brought by a woman named L- Lily Ledbetter who mm. was worked in a tire factory in um Alabama and realized years after being there somebody sent her the statistics that she was being paid like more than half less than the men who were doing exactly the same thing. And so she Mm. sued and won a judgment by a jury. And the Supreme Court struck it down because they said she didn't sue quickly enough. She didn't. And Ginsburg wrote the dissent saying, you know, a lot of times you don't even know you're being discriminated against. Mm. You, You don't have the data to prove it until when you and that's not what Congress intended when it enacted the civil rights law. And it was a fiery dissent that ended by saying, this is now, the ball is now in Congress's court to fix this. Well, that was an election year, and it became a big campaign issue. Barack Obama used it, crusaded on it, and it was the first bill that he signed when he was president, was elected president, was the Lilly Ledbetter Act.
1: First of all, it is fitting that the very first bill that I sign, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay
0: Restoration Act.
1: (laughs) That it is upholding one of this nation's founding principles, that we are all created
2: equal. And so I think in some ways, that at that point, she was the only woman on yeah. the court. Huh. Justice O'Connor had retired, and she, for several years, was the lone woman on the court and was dissenting more and more frequently, and especially on sex discrimination cases, but also on other cases. And I think that that slow burn, so to speak, is why the Internet... Slowly, slowly, yeah. but more and more got to explode. And then, of course, she it was even a figure on Saturday Night Live, which the which she'd never really seen it. They, they showed it to her.
0: All right, so for our audience, here's a clip of Kate McKinnon playing RBG on SNL. Quite funny. Let's listen.
1: You have no plans to leave the Supreme Court. Colin, mm-hmm. the bench is now my porch. I'm going to sit on it all day and scream, no, get out of my yard. <laughs> So come
0: on, realistically, how long do
1: you think you can hold on? Oh, forever, Cole. I'm eating an apple a day to keep Ben
2: Carson away. In the movie, you see her watching it, her
0: watching it herself. Was, it was the best scene, her watching Kate McKinnon yes. play her on SNL. She yes. seemed to enjoy it
3: she was she really seemed to be enjoying it, and the raunchier the dancing got uh the harder she laughed
0: r b g gets down. I love it, I love it, <laughs> so you know y'all mentioned earlier that you know there are some parts of this film that I think some people it might be new to some people, like she's a big opera fan, she also was really really good friends with Justice Scalia, who was probably just about as far to the other side of the legal spectrum as one could be you know I knew that they were friends and I watched the movie and saw their friendship but I still was like huh how did that work
2: I'm gonna take that one first, okay because I know her and I knew him as long almost as long as I knew her okay and I really think that the best interview I ever did in my life was an interview of the two of them on Hmm. stage uh, just about a year before he died and they were hilarious, but they fought about issues that they cared hmm. about, and they and their views of the constitution uh Scalia's, which was basically it's dead. I mean it's you know, we're stuck with what they the founding the framers meant at the time, and hers that no, they meant it they meant it to be a constitution that would live, and would it, it its words would change somewhat with the times. So that their meaning would change with the times. And as she pointed out then, and often points out, the people who wrote the Constitution, they were my white male property owners. They were not like most of us. They were mm-hmm. not women. They were not people of color. And, and so it was a very, it was a wonderful interview. And you could see, and by the way, they both loved civil procedure. So okay. that's... The,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great moment in the film, uh, helping to illustrate what some think of as an unlikely friendship, but in fact makes total sense when you know Justice Ginsburg. You know uh, that she did appreciate Justice Scalia's love of opera, his sense of humor, and it was a meeting of the intellectual minds. You know, they liked to spar, They they and they both had underneath it all an abiding uh, appreciation for and uh, respect for the rule of law.
0: Yeah, yeah. Why didn't she retire when Obama was president?
1: I think she didn't
2: feel that anybody else could bring to the She said this, could bring to the court what she did at that moment. Is that a bit she, of, hu-
0: of hubris, though?
2: Um, it may be hubris, but it may have also been true. Uh, the court was at that point very divided. And she's not an unrealistic person. After the 2012 election, I think she thought maybe in 20, if she'd been planning to retire in 2013, or let's say 2014, I think she thought that Obama would have a very hard time getting somebody through who she would have approved as a replacement.
0: Mm. Would she have gotten approved? I mean, like, would she have gotten confirmed being who she was back then today? The climate's different, no? Mm hmm.
2: I think Absolutely. it's. hmm. And I, I think it would very much depend who was in the Senate. But as, as you'll see in the movie, one of her big uh, defenders was Orrin Hatch, a Republican of Utah, yeah. who thought she was a terrific judge and understood that she was going to be a, a more liberal presence on the court. But that she was, um, that was in the days of greater de- less partisanship. And so it's not, you know, she was approved, ladies. I think there were three dissenting votes. Right, right.
1: 96 to 3. Right. Yeah. H- hard
3: to picture today yeah. someone who, not only a card carrying member, but a, a longtime staffer at the ACLU and also speaking up forcefully for abortion rights during her confirmation hearings. Uh, almost impossible, really, to picture someone like that being approved 96 to 3 or by the, the Senate. Or,
2: or the other way. If you imagine somebody who worked for, at a pro life organization, Fair enough. Absolutely.
0: So then does that mean in some ways that there might not ever be another, quote unquote, notorious RBG? The climate has changed such that the type of justices we'll see on the bench on the Supreme Court now won't be allowed to be what she was.
1: You know, we're at a moment in time. It's hard to predict the future. I think. And so I wouldn't, you know, as I said, it's interesting to be around Justice Ginsburg. She takes a long view. Look at where we've come from. And um, who knows? I'm sure she hopes that maybe some of her dissents will will uh, ring true in the future. It, it's, it's just hard to know. She likes to talk a lot about the pendulum
3: swinging um, and the pendulum swings in one direction and then perhaps it will swing back. So uh, we, we like to follow her pattern of cautious optimism throughout her career uh so i don't i don't think there's any any way to look at this moment and see how that um you know what that says for the long term
0: yeah for all three of you to close it out um what is a big lesson for younger people any people from rbg's life and her work i mean for me the themes that i saw in the film were pretty evident but what do you all want the biggest lesson to be
1: you know, I think that um, when bad things happen to you, when you're facing challenges and adversity, to, uh, you know, stop and think carefully, okay, how can, how can I approach this? What can I do that's going to get me to where I want to go? Uh, and I think uh, she's done that throughout her life with great success. I'm sure she's been angry in her life. I'm sure bad things have happened to her that have made her angry, but somehow she's managed to, to think ahead and to figure out, all right, how am I gonna deal with this in a way that's gonna be effective?
2: In a personal sense, I'm gonna end by telling you a, a personal story. Yeah. Um, when my late husband was terribly ill, he was in the hospital for over a year. Mm. And she gave me a a piece of advice. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: she said, I'll tell you what you do not spend your days at the hospital, you know, shaking in your boots. It's not good for him. It's not good for you. Mm. Do your work. It may not be your best work, but Mm. it'll be good work. And it'll get you through this and you'll be a better wife when he comes home. And she was right on every single
0: count. I like that. Do your work. Thanks to documentary filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen. They talked with me about their film RBG back in 2018. Also, big thanks to NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Listeners, we're back in your feeds tomorrow. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.